as you're taking your seat, grab your Bible and open up to the book of 2 Timothy. We are continuing on in our summer series called Finishing Strong, trekking through 2 Timothy. The main theme of this letter, one of the prominent themes is the theme of perseverance, of running the race of faith and of getting to the end pushing through the line. I love that analogy. I used to run track. I ran track all throughout high school, and uh, I was a part of a club outside of high school where I trained a few days a week. And um, like in any sport, I saw what is very common. There are different kinds of athletes that are involved in, in sports. There are some I saw consistently, um, they trained Um, so diligently, so faithfully, so hard. And then I saw others who trained very little. They were very lazy and undisciplined. And it was amazing. You know, a lot of people came in, like they do in so many arenas of athletics, with a lot of raw talent and natural ability. And they had so much potential in front of them, but they lacked the discipline and the commitment and the faithfulness required to experience increasing degrees of success and excelling in their athletic endeavor. And then there were some who came in with very little raw talent. I mean, they had the bare bones, they had a little bit of talent, and yet they had such grit and determination, they had such faithfulness and commitment, and what you saw is so fascinating. Oftentimes, those who had the raw talent but lacked discipline failed to live up to expectations. They failed to see it through. They oftentimes would abandon the very thing that they had so much potential to succeed at. And that the opposite is also true. I saw this time and time again, that the people who who looked like they had no real raw potential, but they had such drive and commitment and perseverance and discipline, they oftentimes excelled beyond what I ever thought was capable. I had a coach in my track club who was the equivalent of a Navy SEAL drill sergeant. He was terrifying. I'll never forget the day I joined up with the track club, he was, he was renowned, and I remember coming into the track club, and he pulled me to the side, and he said, Ian, I want to welcome you to this club, and I know you're paying for this, but I want, you to let, I want to let you know something. I'm in charge around here, and here's the way it's going to go. Um, I don't know how gifted and talented you are, but I promise you this. If you stick with me, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you will achieve greater success than you thought you were capable of. He said, but it's going to take work. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And while others heard the objective and they understood, they failed to live up to the standards. They were lazy, undisciplined, and they began to become complacent in some, many even abandoned, and their name is not recorded anywhere in the history books. And others faithfully committed to excelling more and more disciplined, faithful, achieved much. You know, I think that serves as an apt analogy for the Christian life. There's so many who come into this race of faith and God says, here is the standard, here is the objective, and here is how you need to accomplish this and fulfill this, and if you just stick with it, you can be incredibly successful, but it requires such a high degree of faithfulness. And there are so many others who see the standard, who even begin climbing in, in terms of their success in the Christian life, but eventually because of the mounting pressures and the difficulties and the demands on their life and the demands on their faith, they abandon it altogether. 
I don't know what kind of talents and abilities and giftings are represented in each one of you in this room. Not, not completely, not totally. God knows that. He knows how he's painted each one of you. Some of you have more natural giftedness and talents and abilities and even greater degrees of spiritual giftedness and talents and abilities. I, I don't know about all of that, but I know this. Whatever God has given you, the call is the same for every single one of us. It is to be faithful to do what God is calling us to do. The standard is the same for every one of us. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful, and watch Watch how you can become successful. But you know, real faith is always tested in real life. And real faith, tested in real life, is always defined by real faithfulness. And that's what Paul, as he looks at young Timothy in the midst of his hardships, is calling him to practice a greater degree of faithfulness to not quit and not throw the towel in. So he looks at him, and in verse 13, he calls him. He gives him this charge. Let's read the text together. He says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among who are Phagellus and Hermogenes, and may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Here we see that real faith in real life is defined by real faithfulness. And so the question we need to ask is this, well, what exactly does faithfulness require of us? If we're going to be faithful, what is required of us? And the first thing I want you to see is this, faithfulness requires that you understand your objective. Faithfulness requires that you understand your objective. And it sounds so simple, but unless we truly understand what our objective is, we have nothing to be faithful to. If we don't understand the standard to which God is calling us, we can't ultimately be faithful. And here in verse 13 and 14, we see Paul laying out for Timothy this objective, the, pri- the primary objective of his ministry and his Christian life. Now, it's important to understand, he's still drawing upon verse 5 here. Remember what he said in verse 5, for this reason I remind you, excuse me, verse, that's verse 6, verse 5, is I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Timothy has a faith that Paul longs to be found rock solid, to be found uh, persevering and enduring, and to be found faithful here in this text. So he looks at Timothy's sincere faith, and he says, okay, Timothy, here's your mission, and by the way, you've already chosen to accept it. This was not a new mission. This was not a new objective. In many senses, Paul is just circling back around to what he already has told Timothy he was required to do, and he gives him this powerful charge. The charge is made up of two distinct parts. Did you notice that there? Follow the pattern of the sound words is the first thing he says. And then the second thing in verse 14, he says, and guard the good deposit. But I think what we can do here as we look at this is really break this down into three components. Following the pattern actually breaks down into two aspects, and I want to show you that. So here's what it looks like. We need to proclaim it, we need to practice it, and we need to protect it. 
Here's the charge for Timothy. First, proclaim it, he says. This is objective number one, Timothy. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. That is a heavy charge that he lays upon Timothy. What he is calling him to is faithfulness to proclaim, notice this, sound words. That word sound can be translated as healthy, that which brings health. The same word is used in relation to Jesus Christ in terms of his healing ministry where he provided physical health to those that he healed. He brought them from a place of brokenness and despair so often. We saw this in the Gospels. And he moves them to a place of strength and health and stability. And that is exactly the charge that Paul lays on Timothy, you are called to bring healthy, life-giving words. And the words we can identify simply as this, teaching, doctrine, specifically related to the gospel of Jesus Christ and flowing from the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, some other translations give us a good sense of this. The Christian Standard Bible translates this phrase, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching. The NASB says this, retain the standard of sound words. The NIV says, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Again, this is not simply a calling for Timothy to embrace these duties or even renew a new sense or or understanding of these duties, you have to remember what's taking place here in the life and ministry of Paul. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, passing the torch of faithfulness onto him. That's why Paul says, look, look, uh, Timothy, I I am the example in this. Remember my life. Remember my teaching ministry. Remember how everywhere I went, you saw me. As I discipled you, Timothy, you saw me faithfully proclaim the same words. Everywhere we went, you saw me suffer for it. You saw me imprisoned for it. You saw me beaten for it. You saw me almost killed because of it. And I never deviated from the same truths. Because this is what was passed on to me Timothy, and I have, I have no option but to pass this on, but Timothy, listen, my time is, is almost up. My apostleship from the Lord is almost over, and God, by his grace, has called you into this position of great responsibility, so I'm passing the baton to you. It's time for you to take it and to run faithfully for the Lord, and it all begins here by proclaiming these sound, healthy, life-giving words, these doctrines, these truths, And really, that's exactly what he's emphasizing, the truthfulness, the accuracy, or the correctness of these words. They and they alone bring health, not to the body, listen, but to the soul. These sound words are those which proclaim, explain, expound upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is the model for Timothy. You've heard me, Timothy, time and time again, You know, Paul set the theological parameters for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the faith, as Jude says, once and for all delivered to the saints. And he says, Timothy, it's time for you to proclaim, and by that I mean you keep it, you hold it, you maintain what you have heard from the start, and you continue to proclaim to others what you have seen me proclaim. This is so important, by the way, in terms of the context, in light of the false teachers that are arising in this church. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul would remind Timothy, for the time 
is coming when people will not endure, listen, here's the same words again, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Timothy, I think, was already beginning to live in that time. That's exactly what was taking place. By the way, that's the same truth that you and I need to come to grips with as well for us, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, we are living out uh, in these latter days exactly what Paul said was going to happen. People will accumulate for themselves teachers who, who simply, you know, they, they want teachers who will scratch their itching ears. In other words, they will give them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. We live in a culture that is calling for tolerance over truth. And we see this, we see this coming against the church of Jesus Christ. I'm I'm convinced that this this is going to come and impact the church in massive ways in our country. We celebrate 150 years of Canada. Canada is an amazing country. I'm so thankful to live in a place that we do. But listen, the tides are changing. The culture is turning against the gospel of Jesus Christ in ways that we have never yet previously experienced. And I believe with all my heart that as the days continue to move forward, we're going to continue to see things get harder and harder And this is so important because while this charge is to Timothy as a leader and a pastor and a minister of the gospel, what I don't want you to do is disconnect this somehow from you and your responsibility. I feel the weight of this as this is a pastoral epistle. I see my role in this, but I don't want you to look and say, well, Ian, that's your job, right? I mean, that's for pastors to do. No. No, no, that is for every Christian to do. And I feel like there's this massive disconnect sometimes in the church of Jesus Christ, particularly in our Western culture, where somehow, for some reason, we believe that that proclaiming sound teaching, healthy, life-giving doctrine is solely the responsibility of the pastors. It's not my job. And yet I think we see time and time again in Scripture that it is the job of every single Christian. And as a church and as a people, we need to be committed to proclaiming the sound teaching that has been given to us. Here's maybe where the rubber meets the road in this. There are too many Christians who are content with a superficial understanding of theology and doctrine, beginning with the gospel, but the entire word of God. And I believe, listen, if we are going to stand firm amidst the cultural onslaughts and the waves that can, are going to continue to crash against us, we need to be solidly rooted and grounded more and more increasingly so in sound doctrine. It's going to take you and me to be more devoted to studying the word of God than we've ever been before. And Paul was so deeply concerned that as the world turned against the church, as it was against Timothy, that the truth be proclaimed. But more than that, listen, it wasn't enough for him to simply proclaim it. He must also practice it. And again, this is so relevant for us. You'll notice what he says there. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Then notice this, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's actually describing here not only the manner in which Timothy is supposed to proclaim the attitude, uh, the flavor of which he's supposed to be proclaiming the truth, but really the flavor of his entire life. In fact, one commentator said this, that faith and love in Christ Jesus are really an abbreviation for the authentic life of faith. I love that. I think that is absolutely accurate. They are the two dominating characteristics of the Christian life. We walk by 
faith and not by sight. We follow the greatest commandment of all, love God and then love our neighbors. And everything else flows from a life of faith and love. And this is what we proclaim, isn't it? We proclaim, come to Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Understand the love of God in Christ Jesus and stay and live in that place. The attitude with which Timothy was to maintain his orthodoxy, his sound doctrine, was so vitally important. In fact, you could argue that Timothy maintaining his orthodoxy was almost as important as the orthodoxy itself, the manner in which he he maintained it. In other words, sound doctrine is always supposed to lead towards sound living. This is the way it's supposed to be with you and I as well. We are to practice what we preach, right? We say this cliche all the time, and yet there is so often a massive disconnect in the lives of many Christians. Your behavior and your life must flow from your teachings. Your life must be radically transformed by the things you proclaim to others, the things that you are studying yourself. I was reminded of the power, listen, of a faithful life to to practice what we preach. Just once again this week, I read two separate articles. Many of you may have heard that in the Catholic Church, the third highest ranking leader in the Catholic Church in Australia, did you hear about this? He's now been officially charged by the police in Australia for sexual abuse ongoing, rampant sexual abuse that's been covered up in the Catholic Church. And we look at that, and we, we know, right? We know there's been an epidemic in the Catholic Church. There's been a problem for years. This current pope has had this kind of no-nonsense policy when it comes to this stuff. He's going after it, so he says. And, and we look at the Catholic Church, and we say, this is indicative of so many things that are wrong with the Catholic Church. And sometimes we forget that Christianity itself and Protestantism has its own flaws. And in the same week, I, I read an article about a major missions organization, a Protestant missions organization, where the leader of this missions organization had been for decades and decades sexually abusing young women, missionaries, kids, years and years and years overseas, and and the whole organization had been covering it up for years. And this stuff goes public. And we look at this and we say, this is horrific, right? Because the hypocrisy is so blatant and so obvious. And yet, can I, can I just encourage you with this? We look at this and we say, shame on them. And yet we need to look at it and say, yes, shame on them. But hey, hey, where do we need to grow in terms of our own personal hypocrisy? And maybe some of you have some fairly extreme sins that you are hiding and covering up in your life that would be devastating, you think, if found out. But I would suggest to you that every single one of us has inconsistencies and incongruities in our Christian life. We are not yet who we ought to be, amen? And we need to look internally. I was reminded, in these instances, do you realize too that these things, these kind of sins, they don't happen overnight. Do you realize that? Nobody gets to a place like this where they're committing atrocious, grievous, heinous, wicked, evil sins overnight. It is a slow progression from one little sin to the next. And I, I love what Song of Songs in Song of Songs 2.15 says this. It says, pay attention to the little foxes, for it's the little foxes that ruin the vineyard. 
Listen, listen that, that's in terms, that's in the context of a relationship. You know, if you're not managing the little things in the relationship, then eventually things will spiral out of control and the whole vineyard will be destroyed. But can you just take that principle and use it in your life of holiness and the fight against sin? If you're not paying attention to the little uh, inconsistencies and incongruities and little sins in your life that you just think are minor, they're inconsequential, can you see that eventually over time you get enough little foxes in the vineyard and eventually the entire thing is going to be spoiled and ruined? I just urge you, pay attention to the little things. Get a hold of them right now. Confess them, forsake them, deal with them. And many of us know what happens when we don't. Many of us have seen the spiral that often happens into sin. Wondering how we got there, it begins here. Deal with the little things first. So embrace this concept in your life. You need to be teaching yourself first and foremost. Okay? When you're studying the scriptures, the call is to teach yourself first and foremost to know the truth, to believe it, and then to live it. You know, sadly, many Christians don't ever get a chance. By the way, you know, you know the word of God is an offense to many people. Sadly, I think many Christians never get the chance to, chance to let the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ be an offense because they're too busy being the bigger offense. Their life, the way in which they speak the truth, we offer God's word rightly when we do so in faith and in love, when we live out what we love so dearly, what we say we love, what we call others to love and believe, to effectively proclaim the faith that we hold so dear, the faith that has saved us and is God willing changing us, we must authentically practice our faith. Again, Paul's going to come back to this, so I, don't, I, I always struggle with getting ahead of myself here, but I have to pull this in. Just remember what he says in, in uh, I think it's 1 Timothy 4, 16. Listen, listen to what he says. He says this to Timothy, again, in 1 Timothy 4, 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, right? Notice how these two fit together. Persist in this. What is the this? In watching yourself and the teachings. The both of them have to go together. Why, Paul? For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the means by which God will make you a more effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where one of those are faltering or not being paying attention to, so your ministry effectiveness is significantly hampered and hindered. What people hear from our lips, they should see in our lives. And so just, just for a moment, I, I want you, listen, I, I, don't, I don't want this to stay in this theoretical realm. This, we, oftentimes we live, when we start talking about theology, we live in this ambiguous realm where we're like, that's a great principle. Yeah, I really like that. How about this? How about you just take a minute right now and you begin to think about some of the things in your life that need to change. And I think you can look at it from two angles. What are the negative things right now, the things that you are doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? What are the sins right now? You know, what, you know what they are, the sins that you are pursuing, the sins that are characterizing your life that you know right now have no business being a part of your life and your character. Some of them are patterns that have been ingrained and you need to right now, you need to look at that, look at those sins and you need to say, this is what I need to deal with right now. Some of them, listen, are, they're, they're positive things that you know you're not doing and you need to start doing. It could be simple like, 
loving your family better, sacrificing time to be with the Lord and growing in your spiritual disciplines. It could be sharing Christ with your neighbor. You know God has been in, is convicting your heart over the last year and you need to step out and you need to do something. Look at your life, make an assessment, maybe jot something down that you believe the Lord is laying on your heart, and you need to be committed by the grace and power of God to begin to change and grow. The third thing that he calls him to, besides proclaiming it and practicing it, is to protect it. And this is fairly obvious, and this verse in some senses parallels verse 13. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There's a slight nuance here, a little bit different than the previous verse. He looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, you need to guard or protect the good deposit. The good deposit is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sound teaching of the gospel that has been deposited into Timothy. This is what we see in verse 12 as well. Just look back to verse 12. He says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able, notice the words here, the parallels, to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. There's a parallel here, but I I hope you notice the difference. You see back in verse 12, it's God who is the one who's responsible to do the guarding. And here in verse 14, it's fascinating. He looks at Timothy and he says, okay, Timothy, now your responsibility is to guard what has been entrusted to you. It's again, these these twin truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, they're all throughout scripture and we need to be content to live in the tension here. But I love the imagery that he paints with these words as well. The the imagery is so helpful. You know, we, we take for granted in our modern age the protection of our money, don't we? Can you imagine living in the wild, wild west? You know, where people put their money in banks and they were robbed, at least according to the movies, like every other week? Like life savings, gone, just like that. We, we go to the bank, we put our money into a machine if we ever talk to a person I don't know anymore, and then we believe, we just believe with great faith and trust that our money is going to be protected. It's gonna be safe and secure, and we go on living our lives as if nothing could ever happen to this money. It's safe, it's in a vault somewhere. It's actually pretty astounding what we have in terms of the security of our money We have this expectation, that's why bank security is often so tight, right? Money is insured, why? Why, because if it's stolen, listen, lives can be ruined, destroyed. You lose everything, everything you work so hard for in an instant and your entire life is changed. This is what Paul is getting at. Don't you see the idea of watch your life and your teaching, your sound doctrine closely, persevere in them, for if you do, listen, here's the point, it will save both yourself and your hearers. This is what can happen if we don't protect sound doctrine. People's lives will be ruined. We need to guard the good deposit entrusted to us because if we don't, eternal realities are changed or destroyed for some. God has deposited the gospel into our account. 
Our objective is to keep it safe and secure so it's not lost or damaged, so it's not manipulated, distorted, and ultimately destroyed. Paul would say, again, you can just flip back one page in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at these words that he uses. Again, he wants Timothy to get this concept so badly. We need to get this so desperately. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. He says, why, why, what's happening? Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Do you see how serious this is? People are coming along, Timothy, and they want to change the gospel. They want to distort it. You think of Galatians 1, oh, how quickly you have abandoned the gospel that was, who's bewitched you? This is a serious, serious thing. But did you notice, you know the hope we get in this? You notice the power that we've been given to guard this? Do you see again how it actually comes back to God? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. God ensures, listen, the success of his mission. God does what only he can do. Here's what you need to think for yourself. God does what only he can do as I, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, do what he requires me to do. This is a strange dynamic, how the Spirit works with our own effort. The whole thing is kind of bound up with some kind of mystery. God calls us to take responsibility in his work, but as we step forward in obedience, the work is actually done by him. You got it? Me neither. In Philippians chapter two, it'll be verse 13 on the screen behind me, but verse 12, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says these astoundingly helpful words, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work out your salvation, you work your sanctification, your growth in the Christian life. Do it, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, who's doing it? Am I doing it? Yes. So God's not doing it. No. He is doing it. What? <laughs> it's like who's on first, right? This is, this is honestly, and, and the reality is this is so complex. And, and the, the question, here's what we need to ask. We can know this, that God is not working in us and through us if we are not working for God. Because here's the key, I can't, there's no special secret indicator that the Spirit of God is working. Here's how you know, if you're, fa- if you're faithful to follow these verses, listen, if you work for his good pleasure, if you're working for his glory, if you're, if you're expending effort for the things of the Lord, you can be sure that that is evidence, that is actually evidence that the Spirit of God is the one who is fueling you. So, well, well, how do I know the Spirit's not working in me? You're not doing anything for the Lord. You're not. You're not serving the Lord. You're not sharing your faith. You're not pursuing holiness. And that is evidence that the Spirit of God is not working in you. So how do I, how do I get the Spirit of God to start working in me? First of all, repent. It's always the first key. God blesses the humble. And then start working at what God requires you to do, what he calls you to do, and watch how his power infuses everything you do. You see, this depicts the tension between keeping the power of God, excuse me, it depicts the tension of the keeping power of God and spirit-energized perseverance of the saints. 
True saints, true followers of Christ, always persevere to the end only by the grace and power of God. God always protects. He always infuses energy into His children. So here Paul looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, you need to understand your objective. If you're going to be faithful, you need to understand what it requires of you. You need to proclaim it. You need to practice it. And you need to protect it. And this is so weighty and it's so serious. And Timothy, I want to show you some examples of what this can look like and what it should not look like. So he moves on to what is our second point here, and that's this. Faithfulness requires that you fulfill your obligation requires that you fulfill your obligation. It's not enough just to understand your objective. You actually have to follow through to fulfill the obligation that you have embraced. And every one of us, listen, if we have embraced Jesus Christ, our obligation is to, as servants, follow our master in everything he commands of us. That is our obligation. And so as we dive into the word, as we proclaim it, as we practice it, and as we protect it, the idea here is that as we learn it and know it and love it and believe it, God is calling us then to fulfill everything that it calls for us. When you understand your objective, you have only two choices. Listen, there is no neutral ground here. This is so important to understand. You have two choices. You can either fulfill your obligation with faithfulness, or you can fail at your obligation with unfaithfulness. You're either going to succeed or fail And one of the most powerful incentives to faithfulness is to hold up personal examples. And that's what Paul does here. He gives two examples to Timothy that illustrate the two potential realities for every single follower of Jesus Christ. You can be like this, Timothy, or you can be like this. There are no in-between areas here. There's no neutral ground. And so the first example he gives us reminds us this. Listen, here's, here's a choice you get to make today. You can be one who is characterized by the tragic reality of faithless abandonment. The tragic reality of faithless abandonment can be what characterizes your life He looks at the context of what has taken place, and remember, Paul is is in prison, and Timothy is being attacked, the persecution is ramping up, and he says to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Asia, if you remember, was the hotbed for ministry for the Apostle Paul. He spent so much time in Asia preaching the gospel, planting churches, making disciples. We've just seen this throughout the book of Acts. He devoted so much time and attention, effort and energy into the ministry in Asia. And even the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is pastoring, remember, he spent three years there pouring himself into the church. In Acts chapter 20, when the elders see him off, remember him, them with tears, weeping at Paul's departing, knowing that they were likely never going to see him again. And he weeps as he tells them, listen, fierce wolves are going to be raised up from among you and try and tear apart the flock. And here's Timothy living this out. Remember Acts 19.10? Listen to this. It says this, that this continued Paul's ministry for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This just tells you the extent of ministry, and that's so important to see the wholesale abandonment that he's experiencing now. For all the widespread ministry and profound impact that Paul had had, 
Paul could now say, all of Asia has turned away from me. Can you hear, can you hear in this the heartache of Paul? This is devastating to him. He longs for people to walk faithfully before the Lord. The last thing he hoped for and thought would be a reality was that all of these churches and these people that he administered to so faithfully, so diligently, the hours he had invested into them, and now they've turned their back on him as if he doesn't matter to them in one bit. You see, is it really true that all Asia had turned away from Paul? Listen, hyperbole is a preacher's love language, okay? Not me, other preachers. Always speak in the extremes to kind of, you know, hammer a point home. And so I think in one sense, this is an example of hyperbole. I mean, look, not all have turned away from Paul. Timothy had not turned away from Paul, and he's going to give an example of another guy in Asia who had not turned away from Paul. And if you turn the end of the letter, he's going to start commending and, and saying hi to a bunch of people in Asia who have not turned away from him. But, but if you can just picture this, this demonstrates the feeling of loneliness and the abandonment by so very many who should have been faithful. It feels like everybody has left. They had once showed such commitment and resolved to follow Jesus. They had once been eager to support the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but all of a sudden, persecution was ramping up against Paul, and to be associated with Paul meant a sacrifice of personal reputation. Maybe it meant sacrifice of personal goods. Maybe it meant sacrifice of a place in society. Maybe it even meant sacrifice of their entire life. And one by one, they began to say, Paul, you've, you've had an impact on me, but you know what? This is too much. I'm sorry. So what does this mean that they turned away from me? Does that mean they abandoned the faith? Or, or just that they abandoned Paul? It's hard to say that the word here, turned away, is, is used oftentimes by Paul in, terms, in, in speaking contextually of abandoning the faith apostatizing, but it can also be used um, not in the apostatizing sense, but just in turning back on friendship and things like that. We don't know how many of them actually demonstrated that they weren't of the faith. Maybe they gave evidence for a time, but ultimately they showed they weren't. We don't know if that's the, the general. Certainly, we, we, we shouldn't believe, I don't think, that all of Asia was somehow, uh, in a sense, a state of apostasy. What is clear is that so many of them were so weak in their faith, so immature, that they demonstrated a faithlessness to Paul, abandoning him in his time of need, abandoning the opportunity to stand with him and to suffer with him, uh, abandoning the opportunity to stand and say, Paul, we're with you in heart and soul. We're behind you 100%. We're not going to be sh shrinking back in terms of our faith. And what they did without really knowing it at the time maybe is that they demonstrated not just a faithlessness to Paul, but a faithlessness to Jesus. You know, personal preservation often supersedes people's commitment to Christ. 
And there's a sense in which I think even in our, our culture, we get this. Uh, we are concerned overly so about our reputation and what people will think of us if we stand for Jesus, if we speak up and share the gospel, if we stand up even sometimes morally for what is right, if we make a statement that seems controversial and intolerant to the world around us, oftentimes we are prevented by means of self-preservation from being faithful to Jesus. But you know what, I think in our generation, in our time, our abandonment is less about external persecution and more about, more about worldly enticement. We're not really abandoning Jesus because we're afraid of how people will think of us. Not, not most of us, not wholesale, that's for sure, but there are certainly a lot of followers of Jesus Christ who are abandoning Jesus and, and abandoning faithfulness to him because they are more concerned with the love of the world than they are the love of Jesus. I'd rather fill my schedule with all kinds of other extracurricular activities, with sports and entertainment, with work and with leisure than with serving the Lord or being a Christian in Christian fellowship, being at worship with God's people, growing spiritually and pursuing the things of the Lord. You see, oftentimes we fill our lives up with so many other things and don't do the very things that are necessary for us to demonstrate faithfulness to God. And yes, the two can coexist together, but the, the issue is one of priorities. What is the one that rules us? What is the one that guides us? What is the one that we are most concerned about? Again, like I said, it will be increasingly more difficult in our culture to be faithful to Jesus in a bold, unfaltering, countercultural way if we are not more rooted and grounded and prioritized in terms of our following of Jesus. And Paul names two men here. Did you notice that? He's not afraid to let Timothy know who he's talking about. Amongst all of the others, here are two that stand out to Paul. Why does he name these two men? Maybe because their defection was so staggering. Likely, it's Timothy knew who these guys were. That's what you need to understand first and foremost. It's likely that these guys were potentially leaders in the church. Maybe they had some massive leadership responsibility, and so their defection is so mind-boggling, it's so staggering, Paul is putting them forward and saying, can you believe even these guys have turned their back on me? You may have heard of the name Charles Templeton. Back when Billy Graham started his ministry, he was good friends with this man named Charles Templeton, and many of you have heard the story, but Charles Templeton was really described as being the better, more effective, more charismatic preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham was a step or two below him in terms of prominence, in terms of eloquence, and in terms of impact, and Charles Templeton not long into his evangelistic ministry, even at the height of his evangelistic ministry, he abandoned the faith and he, he ended up writing a book called Farewell to God. Wholesale abandonment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became a flat out atheist. He, he, in this conversation with Billy Graham, he told Billy Graham he didn't understand how you can actually believe in the Bible. It's a sad, sad tale of two separate paths. And here's what's so incredible. We know nothing, listen, about these men, and you may know nothing really about Charles Templeton, but one of the things that we know for sure, 
with these men. Listen, not a single thing. We don't know a single thing that they accomplished in their life. We don't know how successful their lives were. We don't know how successful their careers were. We don't know how well thought of they were. History doesn't record anything about these men. There is no legacy of success in the world, no sense of why they abandoned Paul and what for, but that doesn't matter because the only thing they leave behind in this life and the next is a legacy of faithless abandonment. It's a faithless legacy that defines them. And it's a warning intended to motivate the right response both in Timothy and us. He says, Timothy, don't be like these men. They once had such a bright future. They were once walking the right path and now they've turned their back on me and they've turned their back on Christ and who knows what they're doing. And he looks at us and he says, loved ones, loved ones, listen, church, don't be like them. Wherever you're at right now, listen, no matter how well you're doing or how poorly you're doing, don't be like this, these men right here. Don't start off strong and then fizzle out down the long run when things are just getting hard, when it's in the grind, that, that final straightaway where it takes every ounce of effort to keep going and to press on with the greatest sense of focus you should possibly have. Don't throw the towel in. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter how hard it is, whatever the circumstances are, don't be like these guys. Everything you choose, listen, over faithfulness to Christ will turn out to be profoundly inconsequential, regretful, and shameful in the end. Let me say that again. Everything you choose over faithfulness to Christ will turn out in the end to be profoundly inconsequential, regretful, and shameful. Lee Strobel many of you are familiar with in his book, The Case for Faith, describes a conversation he had with Charles Templeton 50 years after he had abandoned the ministry. Right near the end of his life, he was 80 years old, had only a couple years to live. He struggled, suffered with Alzheimer's, and he had this conversation with Charles Templeton about Jesus. And at the end of the conversation, about talking about what's, what a great man Jesus was and, and how mean, if he's the most important person in all of history, at the very end, with head in hands, tears streaming down his face, voice quaking and trembling, he simply said, I miss him. Profound regret and shame. Don't let your legacy be defined by the tragic realities of faithless abandonment. Instead, Paul says, let your legacy be defined by this, the triumphant reality of faithful commitment. Here's, here's not what you want to look like, Timothy, but here's what you want to look like. And he, he brings out this man, Onesiphorus, in verse 16, he says, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me, look at this, earnestly, and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Look how faithful this guy is. I mean, th this is the guy that you know and you love, Timothy, and you know how he served. Time and time again, his life was marked consistently by a life of faithful devotion to Jesus Christ. You know, on Onesiphorus, his name means help bringer. You think he lived up to his name? 
The concept of mercy is used twice in this short section. First, for Onesiphorus' family, the second specifically for Onesiphorus, but I love how he does this in verse 16, and he, he, he wants to pray for and honor the household of Onesiphorus. That is such a sweet thing, isn't it? It's a term, by the way, mercy is a term of compassion and pity towards those who are experiencing suffering and hardship. In other words, he, he looks at, at the family of Onesiphorus, and he praises God for them, and he prays for them because he knows what a sacrifice they have made as Onesiphorus has served so faithfully Paul. He looks at Paul, or excuse me, Onesiphorus and his family, and he says, you're in this together. Isn't that a great picture? Isn't that a great reminder? Listen, that anybody who serves the Lord faithfully, if you have a family, by the grace of God, you do not serve alone. You serve as a team. He's going to talk about his family once more in the last part of the book. Onesiphorus' family is in Ephesus. He's so grateful for their faithful commitment to Jesus by serving sacrificially Paul. By the way, this was done, and the reason he does this is because they did this at such a great risk. Onesiphorus did this at great risk to both himself and his own family. It required probably great expense, great effort, great energy, and the entire family shared the cost of this. This is burdensome, but they were all in this together. They knew together collectively that they were serving Christ. So often we forget those who are often seen as doing the ministry as being really part of a team, a family who makes the sacrifice to make specific acts of ministry possible. Paul knows this and he prays for the family, honoring them in the process. There's something special about recognizing those who serve well. And let me encourage you and your families. Pastor Brian sent me a text this morning. It was sweet. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And uh, that's, that's really fitting because today is Pastor Brian's five-year anniversary of being at this church with Polly and his family. And he's shaking his head because he has no clue I was going to talk about this. This is awesome. <laughs> I couldn't wait. I told the elders this morning, I can't wait to see his face. This is going to be good. Um, Brian and Polly, why don't you both come up here for a second? They had no clue we were going to do this. Okay? It's a long weekend, a lot of people away, so at least it lessens the burden. I, just, I, I, I think, look, it is a special thing to be able to to look at examples of faithfulness, and I think that's what Paul does in this letter, and what a privilege. I can look at a lot of people in this room and say they're incredible examples of faithfulness, and I'm grateful today, uh, five years, we celebrate five years of faithfulness, not just for Brian, but for Polly and their family, and, uh, and I, could just, I can say to you guys, I'm so grateful for both of you, for your family, for the way you serve the body of Christ. Uh, I love you dearly. Um, you've been an example in so many, so many ways of humility, of Christ-like sacrifice. You've given up much to do the work of the ministry. And uh, I love you both, and I'm grateful for you. And so maybe we can just honor them for five years of faithfulness today together. Okay, come with them. Give me a hug. Love you guys. All right. It is a sweet thing to recognize those who are serving so well. And by the way, it seems here that Onesiphorus has been separated from his family. This is part of why Paul prays for him. They've been separated because of this. He had to go on a journey to serve Paul, and he left them behind. It was a great sacrifice. Some people believe that Onesiphorus is potentially, he might actually be dead at this point, and so this is why they pray for, he prays for him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
I don't think we have to see it like that. I'm not convinced that he's necessarily dead. It's possible, but it's more probable that he simply hasn't arrived back from his mission of mercy to Paul. And, and there's, there's two reasons for Paul's prayer. Do you notice this? That he refreshed me, he says, and he wasn't ashamed of my chains. When he got to Rome, he, he searched for Paul. There's a different imprisonment. He had to search for Paul. He didn't know where he was. I mean, Paul is buried. They think they found the site of where Paul likely was. He's buried in a deep, dark hole chained to a Roman guard. And he has to search high and low. He has to go through much. He has to expose himself as being a, a, a aligned with Paul and a follower of Jesus everywhere he goes just so that he can find Paul. And he wasn't ashamed when he got to Paul of his change. He wasn't embarrassed by him. He wasn't humiliated to be associated with him. Instead, he spent his time there refreshing Paul through loving him and caring for him and blessing him and just being there with him when everybody else had abandoned him. To be faithful means to unashamedly serve Jesus. To do so with such devotion, I love this, he earnestly sought for me. This speaks so much to listen to how our service of the Lord and to one another ought to be earnest, diligent, and urgent. And then in verse 18, he kind of comes around full circle, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And then he reminds him again of his faithful service. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. It's a bit of a play on words here. You see, because of Onesiphorus' merciful ministry to Paul, he prays for God's merciful ministry to Onesiphorus. He longs for Onesiphorus to experience this mercy. You notice these words, on that day. We know what this means. The, the translators have put a capital D there, and I think they've got this right. It's the fr same phrase used in verse 12, where Paul talks about God being able to guard until that day. He's going to use it again um, in chapter 4, verse 8. You see, Paul is picturing the day when Onesiphorus stands before Christ, as will all believers for judgment and reward regarding his faithful ministry. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Listen to these words. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, this is the day, that final day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive, listen to this, a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That he would find mercy in the Lord Jesus from the Lord God Almighty. He's not talking about him finding salvation. He's talking about him finding the blessings of a faithful service to the Lord. The rewards that await him, Paul says, I hope he is so greatly rewarded by the mercy of God when he stands before his judgment seat. Paul knows the sacrifices made in ministry can't buy or accept God's judgment, okay? He understands that you can't. This is the, the whole gospel he preaches is not of works, not of works, 
only the mercy of Jesus Christ can gain us entrance into the presence of God. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one is saved apart from grace alone, by faith alone. But he knows, listen, that the ministry of Nesiphorus of mercy is evidence. Listen, it's evidence of a triumphant reality of faithful commitment to Christ. This ministry is pointing to the reality of the faith that is so clear. And he knows that this man will stand before Jesus one day and be rewarded. It's mentioned only here in chapter 4. We know nothing else about this man except, listen, except that he was a faithful servant. You might paraphrase verse 18 like this. Whatever else... Onesiphorus accomplished in this life, whatever he gave up in this life, the legacy of his life is faithful. This brother knew no limits to his service. And in the end, all that truly matters is that triumphant reality of faithful commitment. Paul said it like this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is is required of stewards that they be found, what is it, come on church, faithful. Well done, good and faithful servant. Count Zinzendorf of Moravia in the 1700s is attributed to saying these words, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It was an encouragement he gave to the missionaries who were going out from his care to live for Jesus Christ with no thought of obtaining honor for themselves. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's true, but what we are reminded of here is that those whose real faith produces, excuse me, lived out in real life must produce a real faithfulness that will, listen, will ultimately never be forgotten. It will impact many in this life, here and now, but ultimately their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Their master sees and will reward every single good deed. And in the end, the legacy that will ring for eternity is well done, good and faithful servant. Examples are given here because we have a choice to make. We will be like so many, will we be, excuse me, like so many who would not remain committed to Christ? Or will we be like the few, regardless of what comes our way, who understand our objective, and by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, fulfill our obligation, so that in the end, we too might possess the great and the wonderful legacy of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to do this. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God. God, you are faithful to your word. You are faithful to your promises. You have been faithful to save us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that in your faithfulness, you would keep us faithful. May we be a people, Lord, who choose this day whom we will serve. And tomorrow, Lord, may we be a people who choose that day whom we will serve and the day after and the day after and the day after. And may every day, Lord, may our answer be the same. We long to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We will serve the Lord. 
so that, that, in that on that day, Lord, we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So help us, Lord, this day, this morning, even as we sing, Lord, to be making the choice that you call us to make. Faithful commitment. Follow Jesus. Everything else behind us, just Jesus before us. Strengthen us to this end, we pray. In the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.